You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Amen. So kids up to second grade who are going back to a classroom can go back there now. And we're going to continue in Titus this morning, starting in the beginning of chapter 3. So if you want to get that ready to go. Happy New Year. We're all exhausted. Some of us from partying, some of us from avoiding the parties. I think probably most of us were just really uncomfortable because all of our children were in our beds. And my dog. All right. I actually, I, I feel a little convicted if I felt uh, put out at all because the fireworks stopped pretty quickly after midnight around our house, but apparently the Shields were listening to a mariachi band at 4 a.m. So I'm good. I think I'm good to go. All right. So Titus chapter 3, and Lord willing, we're going to cover the first eight verses here. So just as we normally do, uh, I'll read this out loud if you'd follow along and then we'll pray for some help. Paul says to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people." Let's pray. Lord, we need your help. Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for coming and dying and raising from the dead and ascending to the Father's right hand and giving the Holy Spirit to us. Holy Spirit, thank you for coming and inspiring these words and filling the hearts of those who believe in you. Spirit, please help us now. Please teach us. We know, Lord Jesus, that you promised the Holy Spirit would lead us into all the truth, and we ask for no less this morning than to know all of the truth that you would have for us this morning. 
we recognize really in keeping with this passage that there's nothing natural inside of us that would cause us to draw near to you, that would cause us to hope in you or desire you. But we know because of the presence of you, Holy Spirit, in us, that there's hope this morning that we would draw near, that we would love God, love this word and learn from it and obey it. So please speak to us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so just by way of reminder as to just where we've come from so far, uh, Paul is speaking to Titus. Paul had traveled through the island of Crete, a, a really rough place, and uh, an island in the Mediterranean, a large island, and, and it had a really bad reputation uh, for, for being a place where culture was, uh, was undeveloped, even in the world's eyes, in terms of morality and, and things like that. So Paul traveled through Crete and, and saw some people come to know Jesus and, and saw gatherings of believers developing, and yet he had to leave, and he sent Titus back through Crete, and he told Titus, that he was leaving him there so that he might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as he had directed him. So he was, he was seeking to see the church in Crete become organized, become um, uh, formed around the scriptures and be led by godly men who could encourage, constantly encourage the people to believe the word of God and to live out the word of God. And one of the primary roles of the leaders, the elders there, and of Titus was to make sure that the gospel was very clear, that there wasn't any kind of other teaching that would, uh, that would pollute the gospel and cause people to believe in some other Jesus or believe in some other truth about God or about uh, how it is we become reconciled to God. So here we have Titus there among the people protecting the gospel, raising up leaders, establishing traditions that are in keeping with God's truth for the believers in Crete. And then he comes towards the end of his letter to Titus and he says these things. Remember that he's teaching Titus how to teach others. So we're, we're getting now to what is the teaching of the church and what is the church supposed to be about? What's the flavor of our lives he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. He goes on and, and says a whole list of things that should characterize the church. But we start here. And I, I realize that this is a bit of a list this morning, but, but we can see that it's, it's got some cohesion that gels together. And Paul does that for us uh, starting in verse 3. But this list here, starting at remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, is especially important for us to remember now, but we want to remember it in their context so that we understand what it was Paul was encouraging them to do. And just remember that in an island like Crete in the first century, in an undeveloped culture, and, and even in the world's eyes, a really difficult place to live and to try to be a quote-unquote good person, you have Paul here telling Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. That's hard to do. And the reason why it's hard to do is 
they had no reason for really respecting or trusting the rulers and authorities that were over them. This is part of the uh, Roman Empire, and Rome was brutal. Rome enslaved. Roman was a, Rome was a kind of hateful leadership that was all about the central leaders, and especially the emperor glorifying him. It was about worship of him. That's what obedience to Rome and submission to Rome was about. So then how do Christians submit to rulers and authorities who are ungodly? Well, like I said, this is especially important for us to kind of learn from right now. We just have this presidential election in the rearview mirror. Uh, in fact, it's still kind of, I mean, we have Inauguration Day coming up, and for most of us, uh, certainly many of us, there's a struggle in our hearts to really joyfully submit to this command. I don't know how you deal with things like this, but a lot of times I can kind of find, I can find some kind of spiritual energy or some motivation to submit, but not to do it really with any joy at all. And, and it gets back again to the problem that they were facing in their day is like, you're asking us to submit to these people, these rulers, these authorities, and to subject our lives to them and to obey them. And it's hard. Um, I mean, if we're being honest, this, this was probably one of the most wild elections we've ever experienced. It, it just, at times it seemed out of control, didn't it? And, and I think for most of us, and again, I'm, I'm not... I'm not trying to get into how each person in the room feels about the results of the election or about the two candidates that the, the two primary candidates that were up for election. But for most of us, we felt like we were being asked, "Would you rather be shot or stabbed?" It felt a little bit like that. You had to vote for either being shot or stabbed, and and uh, so it it leaves us in this place where again, most of us, or at least a lot of us have this feeling like, how can I be submissive to rulers and authorities with any kind of joy at all in my heart, with any kind of zeal, any kind of passion to obey this? I mean, if, if God is telling me uh, to give, to, to give generously to those who are in need, I can find something in my heart to joyfully submit to that command. But if you're telling me submit to these rulers and authorities, it's hard to get to a joyful place. That's natural. It's, it's even understandable. It was understandable for them. It still is for us. And we're not any exception. It's not like we live in some strange day where the church is struggling to submit to rulers and authorities with joy. But here we are. And, and let me say this. It's hard to submit to someone you don't trust. That's at the core of it. It's hard to submit to someone you don't trust. But submitting to rulers and authorities in the scriptures has the same idea behind it that a wife submitting to a husband has in marriage. There's the same kind of context going on. And so... Take, for example, Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And, and when God is telling wives, submit to their own husbands as to the Lord, he's not saying, 
Treat your husband like a god. Submit to him as if he's God. Rather, it's saying step back and see your submission to him as an act of submission to God. So it's the same idea here. How can we joyfully embrace this command to be submissive to rulers and authorities? How can we do that with joy in our spirits because we know we're doing it unto the Lord? We're doing it because He said so, not because they're worthy of it, not because they're so respectable, not because they're so trustworthy, but because God says, submit. So we do so. And I think we can find a... Uh, maybe a little more access in our hearts to joy when we know we're doing it unto the Lord because the Lord is worthy of it. He is worthy. He is trustworthy. So being submissive to rulers and authorities then is connected to this next phrase, to be obedient. And being obedient here, I think, carries a kind of a double meaning. It's connected to the idea of the rulers and authorities that we're to be a people who are not disobedient. We're not going out of our way to disobey rulers and authorities, to be a thorn in their side. This is the reason why sometimes I get a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of the church being this like rebel base in the empire. And we're all kind of, did, did you miss the Star Wars thing? I'm the only geek in the room that we're this kind of outlying rebel camp and we're this thorn in the side of the, the dark empire and we're supposed to be causing disruptions and all these things to, to get attention for a cause. But that's not really the tone here, is it, of the church? We're to be people who are obedient, who are submissive. That when the world looks at the church in terms of even political things, they see the church as people who are calm, who are steady, who are unafraid. That we're not trying to subvert. We're not trying to get around the authority. We work under and within the authority of the government. Of course we know that God's government is the highest level of government. And we obey him, just like Peter and John went to the Sanhedrin and they were commanded to stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. And what did they say? You judge for yourselves whether it's right that we should obey God or man. But as for us, we cannot help but speak about the things we've seen and heard. So they told the rulers and authorities, we have to disobey you when it comes to obeying God. If you're going to pit us against our highest authority, we will obey God and not you. Of course, we would always say that, but we're not going out of our way. We're not seeking opportunities to be unsubmissive or disobedient. We would rather be at peace. Like the scripture says elsewhere, as far as it depends on you, do everything you can to be at peace with everyone. Being obedient carries that same tone. It's obedience to, sub to rulers and authorities, but as an act of obedience to God. Then he says, be ready for every good work. Being ready for every good work is in sharp contrast here to what he, how he described the false teachers. He described them as, in verse 16 of chapter 1, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. These false teachers who were opposing the gospel 
They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They were led by a different spirit, and they were led by their own sinfulness, unfit for any good work. In fact, they deny God by their works. And here, we're supposed to be ready for every good work. In fact, the scriptures say we should be zealous for good works. And we can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and see that mankind was created to do work that honors God. God made Adam, he put him in the garden, and he told Adam to work the garden. And before sin, everything that Adam put his hand to do to work, it just produced fruit. Fruit that glorified God, fruit that was pleasing. And then sin comes in, and everything that Adam put his hand to do produced thorns and thistles. It was difficult. You ever save up just enough money to pay something off, and then your transmission immediately goes out? That's just how the world works now. Things are just broken. We, we want to do work that's good and that pleases God, but it's as if the world is rebelling against it. But still, we're called for, to be ready for every good work. And works are called good because they honor God. Not because of how fruitful they are necessarily, but just because it honored God. We see in Ephesians 2.10, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works so that those good works prepared beforehand by God for us would honor him. So we're just made to do good work. The problem is that human beings, because of our sinful nature, are going to try to make good works do something they weren't meant to do. They were meant to honor God, glorify God. They were meant to, to even be something that's encouraging for us, that God created us for us, so when we're doing it, we're in line with God's design for us. But instead, we want to make our good works the basis of God's love for us instead of just the result of God's love for us. That's the issue primarily, that Titus was combating here in the church in Crete. That when he says we should be ready for every good work, the world, the false teachers were telling them it was only by their good works that they would be able to have any favor with God. That God would look at them, see their good works, be impressed, and decide to recruit them for his team. And of course we know this goes back to a to a Jewish law-based way of pleasing God, honoring God, being unified with God, that if you obey God, then you'll be God's. If you disobey God, he'll reject you. And it completely forgets the gospel. It forgets God's grace. And we'll get more into what Paul says about that. But we were made for good works when we should be doing them. I think sometimes... We're so concerned about being legalistic that we just pretend doing good things isn't really a part of the Christian life at all. That just being good and doing good is not really Christian anymore. It's just grace, man. It's just grace. Like you're just supposed to be who you would have been anyway, but now that you're covered by God's grace, it's okay. Free pass. Get out of jail. 
and nothing changes. But if we're supposed to be ready for every good work, in fact, if good works were created for us to do and we were created for good works in Christ Jesus, then something should change and something should be different. And now good works are not us trying to earn God's favor, but us working from a place of already being approved of by God. We do good works because we love him. Then starting in verse 2, Paul says, again, this is a reminder, remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So please don't forget here, we're talking about kind of the flavor of the church, the culture of the church. What are we like? What are Christian people like? I know that this, uh, this list of errors, this list of sins, here speaking evil of people, quarreling, maybe a lack of gentleness and, and a lack of courtesy towards people, maybe doesn't feel like it competes that much with some of Paul's other lists of sins. Sexual immorality, debauchery, idolatry, these kind of things where you're like, whoa, that's like varsity level sinning, and this feels a little bit JV. Like, mm, talk bad about people. I mean, is that, come on, that's not that bad. And yet, here's the list. Paul took the time to write down things, specific things that he wanted the church to be characterized by. And these are the things that he chose to tell Titus, remind them to speak evil of no one. Now, I don't think it's a mistake that that comes right on the heels of being submissive to rulers and authorities. Because we could sure be submissive in that I'm not going to go out of my way to break laws, but then with our tongues, we could speak evil of rulers and authorities as if we have all kinds of plans. Tear them down, speak about them as if God made a mistake by allowing them to come into the position that they're in. As if this is some kind of horrible derailing of the will of God but we're to speak evil of no one, not even people who hate us. You notice there's no categories here. Speak evil of no one. So if we're characterizing the church here, our lives, what are we supposed to be like as the people of God? We really guard our mouths, don't we? He goes on and describes, this is a list of things that all kind of fit into the category of speech to avoid quarreling, to not be people who are quarrelsome, who are argumentative, who are unwilling to let go of a fight, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This gentleness and perfect courtesy literally can be translated as meekness. That's what the words actually mean. And we know, again, that meekness is not weakness. It's not that you have no power or you have no position or no opportunity to change the situation you're in, but instead you decide not to. You could affect, you could influence, you could rebel, you could dishonor, you could disobey, but instead you choose not to. 
you choose to be at peace. The way this is translated is really good. It's really faithful. The, the word meekness could have just been thrown in there, but it wouldn't carry the full weight. And I love the way it's translated, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. I feel like in some Christian movements, there's this idea that being a nice person is somehow completely irrelevant. That we're to be just truth-tellers. Just truth-tellers. How often have you met a person who talked a lot about just shoot, being a straight shooter and they were like the rudest person you've ever met? And then you've got other people who are more concerned with being nice. They just want to be courteous. And you find them to be at times unable to say the truth. The Christian person is to be a person who speaks truth and a person who does it with perfect courtesy. You're, again, not going out of your way to cause trouble, to cause division, to cause pain. You would rather be at peace if it was possible. So then we have this characterization of the church, submissive, obedient, ready for every good work. That readiness is about eagerness. It's about preparedness. You're, you're on the tips of your toes, ready to jump in for any good work. We speak evil of no one. We avoid quarreling. We're gentle. We show perfect courtesy toward everyone, regardless of how they treat us. This is our demeanor, our attitude, our life towards them. And then verse 3 happens. For, now for means this is all because of this. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So then we have this description of who we all were, all of us were before Christ came crashing in. We have who we should be. We have who we were. You see the difference? And he does it on purpose. He gives this contrast so that they stand up against each other and it's easy for us to see and it's easy for Titus to see how he should be encouraging the people, reminding the people, leading the church. You cannot seek to become the person Christ died to make you unless you know where you've come from. Unless you've come to grips with the deadness of your ability to do good. We ourselves, that's you and me, that's Paul and Titus, that's the Cretan believers, the Jewish believers, all the Greek believers we ourselves were once foolish. So we were not anymore. We're not characterized. We're not defined by foolishness now, but we were then. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. Listen to this description of life. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
Now, here's, it's so easy for us to do this. It's so easy for me to do this, especially for those of us who were raised in the church to read a phrase like that and be like, man, I know some people like that. But you don't, you don't see yourself in that category, do you? For many of I mean, for some of us, we're like, oh yeah, that was definitely me. Definitely. And, and we, usually, we, we usually recognize that in like, how many drugs did you do? How many people did you punch in the face? How many people did you have sex with outside of marriage? These are kind of the categories that we have for understanding how we fit into this. And we don't understand that a nice church kid on the front row, apart from the mercy of God, is a fool, is disobedient, is led astray, is a slave to passions and pleasures, hating others and being hated. Very nice people in the world fit squarely into this category. We all did. And if we don't understand that that's where we came from, then we don't understand why Jesus died for us. Did he die to make you a better version of yourself? An upgraded version? A more moral version of yourself? No, he died to make you an entirely new creation. You are not the person you were before. You were once foolish and disobedient and led astray and a slave to your sin, hating others and being hated, but now you're not. That's the point of this phrase. Now you're not. You're a different person, a different creation. You have a different way of life. It should be characterized by submissiveness, by obedience, by readiness for good works, not uselessness in good works. Not hating others, but instead speaking evil of no one. Being gentle and courteous and meek. Now listen to what made the difference. And just remember that Titus was not unaware of the gospel. Titus was someone who'd been sent to the island of Crete to put the church into order. To keep the gospel as central to the whole life of the church. And yet Paul takes the time to remind Titus, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Again, it is not that we're all pretty good people that God made better people. It's that we were dead people and God saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, that's bringing something back to life and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The gospel makes the difference. And if at any point the gospel is not central to who we are as people and defining the flavor of our lives, then we have to question, has the mercy of God made us new creatures? Have we strayed? Have we forgotten where we've come from? Do we really think that it was ourselves who brought us to this point, this point of reconciliation with God, the mercy of God, the pleasure of God to be united to us? Did we do that? 
Was he impressed with us? So he draw near, he would draw near to us so that he could be friends with us? It was something that was a miracle born in the heart of God that caused us to become his children, that made us different people, that gave us the Holy Spirit who can lead us into submissiveness and obedience and readiness for good works. It was not us who did that. So, uh, and in our culture, there are some general standards of morality, right? Just general standards. Don't murder, don't rape, these kinds of things, where pretty much everybody agrees that's bad. If you do those things, you're bad. You're a bad person. So you hear people all the time in the world be like, I, I mean, I feel like if somebody's mad at them, is usually when it happens, somebody's mad at them and they go, I feel like I'm a good person. I mean, I've never killed anybody. Haven't you heard that all the time? As if killing somebody is the only thing that can make you a bad person. Oh, well, if he hasn't murdered anyone, I guess I should... Here, babysit my kids. So if you break these rules, you're a bad person. Keep these rules, you're a good person. But then also within our culture, there's a second tier of morality that's a lot more relative. There's a lot more debate. There's more of a choose-for-yourself kind of mentality about this kind of stuff, like getting drunk, like gossiping. Some people, even in the world, just because they were raised kind of in a moral home, are like, we don't, we're not going to gossip about people. We're not going to get drunk. But there's also this attitude, it's like, well, but if you do, that's your business. Now, you wouldn't say that. Nobody, even in the world, would be like, look, if you're murdering and raping people, that's not what we do in our family. But hey, you know, you guys do your thing. I don't know, you know, I don't know where you come from or something like that. That'll be your thing. Choose for yourself. And, and we can apply that relativism pretty easily and almost kind of laugh about it when it comes to be getting drunk or gossiping. But what about this? How about this? In our culture, the fact that killing unborn babies fits into a second-tier relative form of morality. I'm not going to do that, but hey, I'm not going to judge you. How did that happen? How did it happen that murder actually went from if you break these rules, you're a bad person, slipping down to a second tier of like, hey, I'm not one to judge. How did that happen? Here's how it happened. There's no Holy Spirit in the heart of an unbeliever. So in terms of what's good and what's bad, it's all a sliding scale. It's all relative, and the world just decides what works for us, what works for me, don't care what works for you. And our culture has decided that things even like murder can be acceptable. Just follow your heart. So here's Paul commanding Titus to remind the believers of Crete to be people who do good and not evil. 
Who decides what is good and what is evil? Who decides who's a good person and who's a bad person? We can't leave it up to the culture. If we leave it up to American culture, which we all feel like historically has been pretty good, pretty good on morality, right? Man, it's lost. It's a broken system. You can't trust it to decide for you what is good and what is evil. God decides. God decides. We're supposed to be people who are for good and not for evil, zealous for good works, ready for every good work because we've been saved from our deadness and our lostness and brought into life in Christ as new creatures by the mercy of God. How do we decide what's good and what's not? The only way to do this is through God's word. It's the only way to understand with any kind of confidence how it is that you can be good and not be evil. Which gets to another question, which is a popular question, particularly in Reformed communities where it's like, I know I was dead in my trespasses and sins in which I once walked, a child of disobedience and of the prince of the power of the air and all these things, and so I brought nothing to the table and God in his mercy saved me. Then this is a question. Well, then can even Christians say that they're good people? If somebody, you know, if this, if this topic came up, could I even say I'm a good person? Here's how I want to encourage you about this. For Christians, the answer to this is not yes or no. It's a conversation. Are you a good person? There's a conversation that has to happen there. Not yes or no. Well, yes. And they don't understand that what you're saying is, I'm a very bad person who was saved by the mercy of God. Christ had to die so that I could become a good person, so that I could do good and not evil. But in and of myself, I'm bad. I'm very bad. I'm guilty of all these things and more apart from Christ. But in Christ, I'm made good in the sight of God. Clearly in Scripture, all of us are bad people apart from the merciful decision and action of God in Christ. God makes people good. And we should be good people. I know that that may sound so simplistic, but I want you to step back and look at this passage. Like, don't, don't have your nose buried in it, seeing one word at a time, but back up and listen to what this is saying. You once were very bad people, but God has saved you and made you good people. Be good people. That sounds like Sunday school, right? Christians should be good people, kind people, merciful people, submissive people, obedient people. And now listen to what he says, starting in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. 
the saying is trustworthy. What saying? What he just said. What he just said is trustworthy. You can bank on it. You can count on it as perpetually true. That it's only by the mercy of God that we've been rescued from the penalty of our sin. That he poured his mercy out on us through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs, recipients according to the hope of eternal life. This saying, the gospel is trustworthy. The fact that the gospel creates a people who are zealous for good works, who are glorifying Christ, this is trustworthy. And listen to what he says. I want you to insist on these things. Insist on these things. We insist on the truth of the gospel. We don't just kind of commend it to you. We insist that the gospel is purely true. There's no aspect of it that's debatable, that's up for grabs, that's questionable. The gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely, categorically, always true. We insist on this. We insist on God's mercy as the foundation of what makes a Christian person different from a non-Christian person. We insist on this. It is only by God's mercy that we've been saved and we've been changed. We insist on the gospel creating people who are passionate for good works. There's a lot of implication there, isn't there? If we insist on these things, that the gospel changes you and prepares you and equips you and sends you for good works, then that means people who believe in Jesus will not sit idly by. They will be involved they will do good works. Not because they're trying to earn God's favor, but because they've already received it. Believing the gospel and living according to the truth of the gospel is excellent and profitable for people. These things, excellent and profitable. In a day when profit has become a detestable thing in the church. People are profiting off of the poor. They're growing in materialistic possessions and worldly possessions. People are getting rich. Shameful gain for preaching what they call the gospel. And here we see Paul saying, Laying your life down for the sake of the gospel is where all the profit is. Profitable and excellent. So that leaves us in this position of rem being reminded of who we are to be, that we can only be those people if we recognize where we come from and we trust in the mercy of God to rescue us and lead us into a new kind of life, a life that's in Christ, that's for Christ, about the glory of Christ, and that we are insistent, not just kind of passively aware of these things, we are insistent on these things. That leaves us in a position 
of being ready. Being ready. Being eager. Desiring to do good. Desiring to please God. Worship God. Honor God in everything we do. Like Paul says in Colossians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. How hard is that? That's impossible apart from the Holy Spirit. How how do we eat in the name of the Lord Jesus? Like, I'm eating in a way that honors and glorifies and lifts up Christ. How do you do that? With gladness and thankfulness and worship to God and camaraderie with your brothers and sisters and welcoming the outsider, being hospitable. That's how you eat in the name of the Lord Jesus. So how do you speak? How do you work? How do you raise your children? How do you love your spouse? How do you sit in a cubicle in a way that you can say is good works, good works that honor God, good works that are an overflow of the gospel being born in your heart? It leaves us with a lot of questions for ourselves because there are a lot of demands, a lot of implications, a lot of requirements that if we believe this, if we embrace this, it changes things radically. It makes you start opening up possibilities for your life that you would have never naturally considered. I'm going to leave it there and let the Holy Spirit do what he can do. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.